Section 4 of The Primrose Path by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Chapter 4 The New Life. Jerry O'Sullivan well knew the difference between the dispositions of his wife and his mother, and it was not without a shrinking of spirit that he approached the dwelling of the latter that evening to impart the unwelcome news. His fears were not without foundation, for when he began to tell his news, the old lady, who had hitherto been full of love and affection, broke out into a desperate fit of crying, a very unusual thing with her, mingling her tears with reproaches such as Jerry had never before heard from her lips. "'And you, my son,' she said, "'are about to leave your home, and your country, and your mother, and to go amongst strangers. Oh, woe the day!' Oh, the day that my child ever wants to leave the ground where his poor dead father lies sleeping. Oh, Jerry, Jerry, was it for this that I watched over your youth, and toiled and slaved for you, early and late, that when I saw you grow into a strong, steady, honest man, with a sweet wife and a happy home, I should see you leave me forever? Jerry interrupted. Not forever, mother. Aye, aye, forever. With us through, with us through. Sure, don't I know I'll never see your face again. You're going, Jerry, among strangers, and their ways are not our ways, and amongst them you'll forget the lessons of your home. You're going to a city where the devil lives, if he lives any one place in the world, and I must sit at home here in doubt, and sigh and weep and weep till I die. Mother dear, don't take on like this. Why should you doubt and sigh and weep at all, at all? I am going to do anything wrong. I'm going to work harder than ever, and I think, mother, I do think that it's not fair to me to think that I'm going to the devil, just because I leave one town to live in another. But reason and consolation were alike thrown away on Mrs. O'Sullivan. The spice of obstinacy in her nature, and which Jerry had inherited from her, made her stick to her point, and so, after many efforts, Jerry came away, leaving her bowed down with sorrow. He was himself somewhat indignant, and with fair enough reason, that all his relatives should take it for granted that he was going to change an honest, hard-working life, or an idle, dissolute one. He did not like to go home at once, for he somehow felt afraid of meeting a reproachful look on Katie's face. This fear was a proof that he knew in his secret heart that he was doing wrong, for in all their married life, Katie had never once given him cause for such a thought. It was in his own conscience that the reproach arose, and the look was on the face of his angel. Accordingly, he made a detour and called at the house of Mr. Muldoon. The great man was within and received him heartily. "'Why, O'Sullivan,' said he, "'this is quite unexpected. Sit down, man, and make yourself comfortable.' Jerry sat down, but was anything but comfortable. Whilst he was on the way to his home, he had felt a desire to stay away, but now that he was settled down, he longed to be at home. Katie's face, pale with her recent sickness, and paler still from her recent grief, seemed to look at him, and he thought and felt how her poor heart must be beating as she waited and waited for his return, counting the minutes and finding in each moment's extra delay new causes for dread. At last he could stand it no longer, and jumped up, 
saying to his host, I can't stay, I have not been at home yet, and Katie will be expecting me. Muldoon laughed. Oh, <laughs> there's a man with three children. Sure a wife in her honeymoon wouldn't look for you like that. Katie would, and does. No, indeed, I can't stay. I just came to tell you that I've got an engagement in the Stanley Theatre in London, as carpenter, and I'm going in less than a fortnight. Mr. Muldoon whistled. This is sudden, he said. Aye, said Jerry, but said no more. You must come and spend an evening with me before you go, and your mother will come, and Marg, uh, Miss McCannisby, and we'll get the boys and girls and have great fun. Agreed, said Jerry, and took his leave. When he got home, Katie flew to the door to meet him, and clung to him and kissed him, and he wondered how he could be such a fool as to stop away for fear of any reproach from her. He told her of his visit to his mother and Mr. Muldoon, and of the invitation of the latter, which she agreed should be accepted. The next week was such a busy one that neither Jerry nor Katie had much time for repining, and even Mrs. O'Sullivan found some consolation in her exertions and the liberal preparations which she was making for her son's departure. At first there was some question as to the advisability of Katie and the children going at once, as some of the family thought that it would be better if Jerry went alone, and Katie waited to follow when all was comfortably settled for her. Katie herself had, however, put a stop at once to the discussion. "'We don't want comfort,' she said, "'and I am afraid to rough it since we are to go.' but I want to be with Jerry. Her mother-in-law backed her up in this view, and so the matter was arranged. Mr. Muldoon's entertainment was a great affair. No expense had been spared on the host's part, and no trouble on the part of his servant, and the consequence was an amount of splendour which dazzled all beholders. The entertainment was given in the drawing-room over the shop, a room seldom entered save by the servant, who periodically dusted it. The covers had been taken off the chairs, which now showed their red cushions in all their splendour. The yellow gauze had been removed from the mirror, the picture frames, and the gasolier, which no longer presented its habitual appearance, that of an immense jelly bag, through which yolks of egg have passed. The eating and drinking was on a scale of magnificence. Not only had the warehouse been ransacked for its delicacies, but good things of, so to speak, an alien description had been provided, and so far as the inner man was concerned, nothing was wanting. The company was the same as that at the christening party, with the addition of a couple of hard, dry old men, of whom Mr. Muldoon thought much, and to whom he paid decided deference. When all the company had assembled, which was about seven o'clock, Mr. Muldoon ordered supper, and all went vigorously to work. Hitherto there had been a little stiffness, Price and Casey had been somewhat awed by Mr. Muldoon's magnificence, and their sweethearts, seeing this, had followed their lead, and remained in seemingly bashful silence. Jerry and Katie and Mrs. O'Sullivan and Parnell were too heavy-hearted for mirth, and so the only members of the party who were lively were the host and Miss McCannisby. The latter was anything but sorrowful, and truly with good cause. She saw, with the instinct of her sex, that she had made a conquest in the rich old bachelor, and already tasted possession of all the splendour which surrounded her. She was even now, whilst she pretended to admire, planning changes in the room and its furniture. 
the chairs would not be arranged as at present, the pictures were too gloomy and would have to be replaced by others of brighter hue. In fact, altogether, much additional splendour would have to be imported, so that all her friends and visitors would be driven to the wildest envy without giving them a chance of escape. When the supper was done, Mr Muldoon stood up and made a speech reverting to Jerry's departure, and wishing him success, and also managing to bring in a neat compliment to Miss McCannisby's good looks, which caused that bashful young female to hide her face in her pocket-handkerchief, and to giggle for some minutes. Before he sat down he said, and said it pointedly, The last meeting of festive description at which we all assisted was, I think, somewhat spoiled by various discussions. Now I hope that tonight we will have no such discussions. I wish that our friends Jerry and Katie may have an evening all jolly and merry. Hear, hear, said the old men simultaneously. Parnell felt that all this was levelled at him, and found his hands tied. There was no discussion of any kind, and as nothing more than casual remarks were made, the party soon took a tone so gloomy that even the lively Margaret found her spirits below zero. All this tended to irritate Mr Muldoon. A man of his temperament gets dogmatic in proportion to his irritation, and consequently he soon was laying down the law on every imaginable point. This still more increased the gloom till all was so deadly that Katie could bear it no longer, and left earlier than she had intended. The rest were not slow to follow her example, and Mr Muldoon was so enraged at the miserable failure of his merry party that he would hardly say good night. The days drew on towards their departure, and all was so busy that there was no time for thought, perhaps just as well for those of them that had hearts to feel. At last the day arrived and their friends assembled at the north wall to see them off, for they were going by sea on account of their luggage which was quite disproportionate to their rank in life. The anguish of parting was very great, and their tears shed many. But partings must ever be, and this one was like all that have gone before and all that are to follow after. So great was the grief of all that Jerry for a time repented of his determination. And so Jerry O'Sullivan and his wife and children left home and fortune to seek greater fortune in a strange place. The voyage lasted three days. For the first twenty-four hours, Katie was too sick to think, and the poor children suffered dreadfully and it was not till the black, bare rocks of the land's end came into view that the poor little woman was able to look about her. Even the first glimpse of her future country was not reassuring, for it looked very black, and cheerless, and inhospitable indeed. However, by the time Falmouth, with its houses clustered up the hill, and its quaint, quiet, old-world look still upon it, came in sight, her spirits rose. From thence the journey was enjoyed by all, for the weather was fine, and the sea like glass. The south coast of England is full of charming scenery, which one sees much of in passing from port to port, and it was no wonder that Jerry and his wife felt somewhat elated at being amongst such wealth and security as the disposition of things there presupposed. Plymouth, the Queen of Ports, with its wealth of naval strength and its picturesque batteries on Mound Edgecombe, Drake Island and the Hoe, and Portsmouth guarded by ironclad towers out in the very sea, miles of continuous batteries and innumerable warships made a deep impression, and somehow Katie felt that Jerry was a cleverer man than she had given him credit for being. It is the nature of the greater to absorb the lesser. 
We see the beauty of the rose in full luxuriance in the summer sunlight. It is only when we reach the core that we find the canker worm. At last the Thames was reached, and the O'Sullivans were fairly awed by the strength of the defences. All up the river, which took them the best part of a day to ascend, the banks were studded with forts on either side. Little low-lying forts, all fronted with iron, dangerous places, very hard to hit from any distance away, but able to contain the best and biggest guns made in the world. The black, iron-cased ports, in rows seemingly level with the water's edge, looked like iron doors of the vaults in a cemetery, a fact which, in the eyes of the onlookers, added not a little to the grim terror of their appearance. The wonder culminated at Tilbury, for here two immense forts defended the narrowest part of the river, and made the idea of any hostile force passing up it a complete impossibility. London was reached at last. Busy, bustling, rushing, hurrying London, compared with which all other cities seem as the castle of the sleeping princess in the fairy tale, and Jerry and his wife on landing from the steamer, albeit they came from a city where progress speaks with no puny voice and works with no lazy hand, felt bewildered. At the best of times and places, a landing stage is no flower garden, especially to the incomer, but the London landing stages, with their great steam cranes and palatial warehouses, and ships lying seven or eight deep out into the river, are wonders in themselves. It was only by patience and care, and asking many questions, that Jerry was able to bring his family into the holy terrestrial world. Through much bustling, scrambling, and exertion, they found their way into the street where the theatre was situated, for as they knew nothing about the place, Jerry thought it best to get as near to his work as he could. He had high resolves, and intended to work harder even in the new life than in the old. The neighbourhood was exceedingly poor, and an amount of misery and squalor prevailed, which showed Katie, in as many moments as the other had taken hours, that all was not gold, which glittered within the strip of silver sea, which her sons call Britain's bulwarks, but that the greatness and wealth and strength have their counterfoils in crime and poverty and disease. More than an hour was spent in looking for lodgings, and Katie's heart was sick and sore. There was some vital objection to every place. One was too dear, another was too dirty, a third was too small, and so on. All things have an end, even looking for lodgings, and towards nightfall they lighted on a place, which, although not exactly what they required, was still the nearest approach to it that they had yet come across. It was over a greengrocer's shop, and promised to be fairly comfortable. Katie, somehow, felt that the mere show of green stuff gave it a little of the idea of home. Just enough, she found out afterwards, to make her homesickness, which had worn somewhat away during the last day or two, come back again. However, she had no time for brooding over sorrows, real or sentimental. The children were dead tired and crying with sleep, and so when a fire was lit and the basket of provisions opened, they were tucked into their bed and fell asleep in a moment. Whilst Katie was thus attending to her household duties, Jerry was exercising his professional skill in making the room comfortable, knocking up nails here and there, and generally improving the disposition of affairs. Both had finished about the same time, and then Katie made the tea, and the husband and wife sat down to chat, 
she sitting on his knee, as all loving little wives love to sit. Jerry now felt face to face with the realities of his new life, and the prospect was not at all cheering. He missed the comforts of home, and felt in spite of his strong willful self-belief, which deadens a mind like his to many outward miseries, that he was but an atom in the midst of the world around him. A grain of sand in that great desert which men call London. Katie was more cheerful, for a wife carries with her husband and children her true home, which rests as securely in her heart as a snail's house on his back. Katie slept that night, for she was tired out, but Jerry could not sleep. In the morning he was stirring by daylight, and after lighting the fire, for Katie was so worn out that she still slept, went out to look about the neighbourhood. It was still so early that but few people were up. He found his way to the theatre, whose external appearance filled him with consternation. The outside of a small theatre is at the best of times unpromising, and this one looked, in the cool morning air, squalid in the extreme. Jerry wandered round it curiously, trying to get every possible view. As it went back into a large block of buildings, this was no sort of easy task, and so by the time the survey was completed he was quite ready for his breakfast. Katie was up and as bright as a bee. The children had recovered their good temper in their sleep, and everything was infinitely more cheerful than had seemed possible for it ever to be the night before. Katie came up to her husband as he entered the room and put her arms round his neck, and kissed him several times very, very fondly. "'God bless our future life, Jerry dear,' she said. "'I hope it will always be as happy as this. If I can do it, be sure your home will always be a cheerful and happy one.' He kissed her in return, feeling more deeply than he cared to say, for there was a rising lump in his throat. The morning passed in setting things straight, and in the afternoon Jerry went down to the theatre again. The place looked more lively than before, although in reality still very dismal. There were a few of those nondescript, ill-clad loungers that are only seen in the precincts of theatres, hanging round the door, those seedy specimens of humanity who are the camp followers of the histrionic army. When Jerry asked one of them where he would find the manager, he winked at his companions, rubbed his lips, and said with obsequious alacrity, "'This way, sir. Come with me, and I'll show you the way.' Jerry followed him through several dark passages, filled with innumerable boxes of all sizes, old woodwork and portions of scenic ornamentation half covered with tarnished gilding, till they reached a door to which the guide pointed, saying, "'It's a very dry day, Your Honour.' "'Very dry,' said Jerry." A drop would not be bad, sir. Jerry's appearance was so good that the man called him sir, not all for the purpose of flattering his small vanity. Jerry gave him tuppence and knocked at the door. He was told to come in, and on doing so, found the manager who was just going out, and who, being in a hurry, told him to come to him the next morning, to talk over his duties and, in the meantime, to see the stage manager, Mr. Griffin who would show him over the place so that he might get accustomed to it. Jerry managed to find his way to the stage, which was lit by a great line of gas jets on the top of a vertical pipe, like a hayrake stuck at the back of the orchestra. A dress rehearsal was going on, and Jerry stood in the wing to watch. The play was a version of Faust, 
and the dresses were the same as those used in Guno's opera. Presently, Mr. Griffin noticed the strange face and came over to the wing. Jerry told him his name and was at once welcomed as a member of the staff. He was introduced to several people on the stage with whom he was likely to come in contact. Amongst the actors was a tall individual who was performing the part of Mephistopheles, who came over to Jerry and introduced himself, saying that he knew John Seabright. Jerry was glad to see anyone who had the tie of a mutual friend amongst so many strange faces, and, although he did not like the appearance of his new friend, spoke to him heartily. Whenever he had an opportunity during the course of the rehearsal, he came over to Jerry and resumed their chat. Presently, he came over and said, I am not on this scene. Come and have a glass of beer with me. With pleasure, said Jerry, for he was hot and thirsty, and the twain adjourned to a little tavern across the street. Mons, the new friend, calling into his dressing room to put on his Ulster coat, so that his stage dress would not be observed. When they entered the tavern, the barkeeper was busy settling his glasses, and had his back turned to them. Mons took off his ulster and sat down, there being no one but themselves present except a drunken shoemaker, whom Mons knew, and a beggarman, who followed them in. When the barkeeper turned round, Jerry met the most repulsive face he had ever seen, a face so drawn and twisted, with nose and lips so eaten away with some strange canker, that it resembled more the ghastly front of a skull than the face of a living man. Jerry was shocked, but in the meantime Mons called for the beer, which was brought and soon drunk. Mons then said, Gwynnel, this is our new carpenter. Glad to see you, sir. Welcome to London. I understand you're Irish. You beat us there in one thing at all events. What is that? said Jerry. Your whisky. We can get none like it, but I tell you what, I'll give you some liquor you never tasted, I'll be bound, and as you're a stranger, I'll make it a present to you. No, no, said Jerry. Take it, whispered Mons. He'll be offended if you don't. Grinnell produced a bottle of labelled gift from the shelf, and poured out two half-tumblers full, and handed one to each. That's what I give for my Hansel, said Grinnell. What do you think of it? "'Capital,' said Jerry, after tasting it. "'What is it called? I see gift on the bottle.' "'No, that's not its name. I put that on it to show my customers that when I give it, I mean civility and not commerce. It's a decoction I make myself.' Just then a boy ran across from the theatre and said, "'Mr. Mons, you're wanted. Your scene is on.' Mons tried to put his hand into his pocket, but could not, as his tights had no pockets. He said to Jerry as he went out, I've got no money with me. Will you pay for the beer and I'll give it you when you come back to the theatre? All right, said Jerry, and he took out his purse. As he opened it, he saw Parnell's picture, and then it struck him that his new life was beginning but badly, drinking in the middle of the day. He paid the money and went quickly out of the public house without looking behind him. End of chapter 4